This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane. Today's guest is Marty Cordero. Marty is the president and general manager of the Omaha Storm Chasers, the AAA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals, as well as president of Omaha's uh, USL soccer team, which is coming online here uh, next spring. And this interview, I'm not going to lie, was a little emotional for me. Uh, Marty is my mentor, and mentor to me has a very heavy tone to it. It has a weight to it. He helped me start my career, and he helped me grow uh, to what I've been doing the last 15 years. And without Marty, I would be screwed. He actually is like a dad to me, and I mean that truly. I went over to Marty's house for Thanksgiving dinner. He's given me advice on countless other things than just minor league baseball and the business behind it. And when he talks, at the time, maybe not, when he talks, I just listen. And I hope, I hope that you are lucky enough to have um, a Marty in your life. Um, He's the best thing to happen to me professionally hands down without a question i owe him more than he'll ever know um but i hope the interview was good too this also too i mean we've done i don't know however many uh podcasts and every single one of them has a battle creek reference uh you can give uh marty all of the credit for starting battle creek because he hired me uh one of my favorite early battle creek stories was we didn't have a office building we had a trailer and it was a double wide trailer. And sometimes I had to um, end phone calls that I was on more quickly because there are feral cats fighting underneath this trailer. And they're it's crazy stuff that was going on. Um, we didn't have a real phone system. We had a cell phone and there was three guys in one room, and Greg Kruger, Mike Knipper, and me. And we would take a cell phone and he would make a call and then pass it to me and then I would make a call and then I would pass it to Greg and then he would pass it to Mike and pass it to me and that's how we made phone calls in Battle Creek uh, in a double wide trailer while feral cats fought underneath it. Battle Creek is a crazy place. Anyway, more Battle Creek stories to come. Uh, everything revolves around Battle Creek. Uh, but in this interview, a uh, couple of points that I, I, I like is Marty didn't have it all figured out when he was in college, uh, coming out of college. Uh, he kind of has uh, this curvy path to where he's become now. And he also does a great job of taking us behind the scenes into the boardrooms of big deals that he's negotiated, you know, like bringing a minor league ballpark to Omaha and all the craziness uh, that revolved around that project. So he's the absolute best. I am 100% biased when I say that. Um, I love him to death. And uh, I hope you enjoy the interview uh, with Marty Cordero. All right, we are here on Front Office Features, and today's guest is Marty Cordero. Marty is the president of the Omaha Storm Chaser and a soon-to-be-named uh, USL soccer team. Marty, uh, good afternoon. Hello, Rob. How are you today? I am great. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to hear from you. It's a pleasure to see you here. Uh, it's always enjoyable to be around Marty J. Cordero. 
So, Marty, um, you used to be a drummer? No, I, I am a drummer again. You are a drummer. I, uh, that is, uh, that is, again, that is, uh, that is accurate. Uh, you never quit being a drummer, but you started your whole career off uh, in in professional drumming. We should also set the stage here a little bit because my questions are 100% leading. So Marty used to be uh, my boss. He hired me in the 2004 baseball winter meetings. Marty is my mentor. He is a second dad to me. So when I ask, you used to be a drummer, I obviously know the answer and I have seen you drum at a bar or two or 10. Yeah, and you've even helped me fix a kick drum pedal. That's right. I did help you fix a kick drum pedal uh, at a bar uh, many, many years ago. uh, And I think that was probably the best set of your life. You know, the second set was after. (laughs) The second set was. Yeah, after I I, I tried not to screw it up too bad. Um, So tell me, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Tell you your life on the road. You were like a you were in a real band. You were traveling all over the country. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. It was primarily kind of the southeastern circuit. You know, we dipped over to Texas and up to North Carolina and, and then the southeast pocket. And it was 89 to 94. That was when alternative rock, as I use my air quotes, uh, was gaining popularity. And the name of the band that I primarily played in was Stony Bridge. And I dropped out of college for uh, three and a half years. And you were going to Louisiana Tech, right? I was. I was going to Louisiana Tech. I was in education. I was going to be a baseball coach after playing baseball through high school, playing music through high school. And uh, obviously, uh, with my six foot three, 250 <laughs> feet, uh, if, if, if anyone doesn't know, I'm 5'7", a buck 53. And, five seven's uh, being generous. Okay, Rob. Right. <laughs> I'm the guest here, okay? I'm the guest. But, um, you know, um, music really kind of set the stage for a lot of things that I still deal with today. Um, whether it's dealing with uh, drunk bar owners trying to get paid at one o'clock in the morning, uh, or whether it is or was uh, going on college radio doing interviews, much like this, uh, probably much much better hosts. That's but, um, bullshit. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, I'll let your listeners decide that. Uh, but you know, I, a lot of things set the stage, and then when I went back to school at Louisiana Tech, I did change my major from. Uh, education to marketing, and I, I got a marketing degree, and I went to work for the baseball program while I was completing my studies at Louisiana Tech. So whenever I know, I you know, whenever I hear about your past, the time that you had with uh, the baseball coach was life changing for you. You know, you thought you were going to go be a baseball coach. When I say the baseball coach, I mean your Louisiana Tech baseball coach uh, was life changing for you. And then he's like. Hey, man, I got some signs to sell. Do you want to take a look at it? Is that about right? Yeah, you know, I went to him and said, I'm going to be a volunteer assistant coach for you. He said, no, you're not. You're going to work in marketing and promotions and you're going to sell stuff for me. I said, well, that sounds like the worst thing in America. (laughs) And, you know, at the time, uh, I just wanted to get in. So, of course, I said, "Okay, I'll do it. And then, you know, after the first year, a volunteer assistant spot will open up and you'll hire me. And he said, "Okay, we'll see. And I enjoyed the promotions and marketing and the sales component of it so much. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't keep my major. I changed my major to marketing and I, I kept right on rolling along. And I ultimately worked for the program three seasons, 96, 97, 98, graduated in November of 98. And then I went to the baseball winter meetings in Nashville that year and attended the job fair uh, and was very fortunate to have a number of interviews. Tell us a little bit about your job fair uh, experience. Tell a little bit about uh, how you got your job, uh, where you went, uh, and you may or may not had a uh, three-year-old. Yeah, you know, Gavin turned three uh, December. Uh, matter of fact, he turned three while I was at the baseball winter meetings in Nashville, and that was the last year that the job fair consisted of all sports, meaning NHL, NBA, and NFL. Hold on, that star. The job fair used to have all sports in it? Yeah, real smart that baseball would, would allow its talent to, to be interviewed by other sports, right? Well, that was the last year that that happened. 
99 was the first year that it was baseball only, meaning major and minor league baseball. Rob, they even had indie ball was also a part of that. So it really? was, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting. Very, very interesting. So that was last year. And I got uh, two hockey offers. Uh, the, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of that league was, but it was maybe even the Western professional league, uh, WPHL. One was Lubbock, Texas. One was Shreveport, Louisiana. And then I got an offer from uh, uh, in uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, uh, for the Beloit Snappers, and then the uh, Jackson, Tennessee Club, which at the time was the West 10 Diamond Jacks, Double A Cubs. And having a three-year-old, Beloit sounded cold. <laughs> uh, hockey, I still don't know anything about or very little about. And you know, Jackson, Tennessee sounded somewhat close to Louisiana, and that's where I ended up, and I took the handsomely paying job of group sales manager, uh, excuse me, no, group sales representative, and uh, was paid 600 bucks a month plus commissions, and my three-year-old and I packed up the truck, and we moved to Tennessee, and that's where I got my minor league baseball career started. That's incredible, and you were in West 10 selling group tickets, uh, and then you went to advertising in there, and then you went to uh, Birmingham. Uh, to go run director sales, and then your biggest life-changing moment uh, of your life, and I would include getting married and having three uh, beautiful young boys, um, would be moving to Battle Creek, Michigan, the center of the world, the greatest place in the history of, uh, of America, and then to hire, hire me. Why in God's green earth did you move to Battle Creek, Michigan? Um, well, it was an opportunity, Rob. You know, <laughs> there's a there are roughly 160 affiliated clubs. Um, at some point in time, my third year in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, uh, I realized, hey, you know what? I, I think this GM thing, I think running a business in minor league baseball is something that that would be in the cards for me. And, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the only goal. But I quickly realized that I needed to go to a larger market. And you mentioned my move from Jackson to Birmingham. So I did. And in between um, my two years in Birmingham, which was 03 and 04, you know, I started getting, in, getting inquiries uh, for clubs that were either looking for GMs, looking for assistant GMs, maybe starting new clubs. And ultimately, after declining a couple of I guess they could have been good opportunities. They didn't feel like the right opportunities to Sarah and myself. Battle Creek was one that I said yes to after saying no to Battle Creek twice. Um, and the ownership group there uh, was also the same ownership group as the Lexington Legends. And Lexington at the time was one of the top performing clubs in the country. And it was the opportunity to go to work for David Hirsch. And to go to work for Alan Stein, I did not know Alan, but David was my first boss in Jackson, Tennessee, and they were acquiring the Battle Creek, Battle Creek Club uh, with the goal of getting a new ballpark built there. And, and it was an opportunity to go grow and uh, cut my teeth as a GM in the Midwest League. So um, in the next spot uh, that you actually ended up with was actually let me go back to Battle Creek a little bit. So you're the first time GM, you're a young GM, and you're in the middle of nowhere. It's a tough, it's a tough deal. Um, what was the thing that you learned the most uh, in that situation when the, you know, attendance might be a few hundred a game uh, or, uh, you know, it's, you know, 28 degrees and snowing on uh, April 15th when you should be playing? What was the thing that you learned the most in Battle Creek? Wow, good question. Um, That's because I'm a professional podcast host. I only ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should know better. Um, just because something may not go as you plan it, just because the success may not be apparent, may not be in the bottom line, may not be in ticket sales, what have you, it doesn't mean that there were not successes that were achieved. And, you know, one of my career defining moments is being the GM 
for a franchise that had its coffin nailed shut, and that was Battle Creek. And you can look at that in one of two ways. You can look at that as, you know what, not cut out for this. I need to go do something else. Or, you know, we worked as hard as we could. It wasn't in the cards. And as hard as we had it, I now have a large number of experiences and a large number of successes in a very tough market that are transferable and that can, and, and, and are portable. And that's where I drew on a lot of my strength when you and I both were able to move to Omaha. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes our failures are as or more important than our successes. And that's what I got from my time in Battle Creek. So you said it, the next stop we w- went to uh, was was Omaha. And for me personally, when we were in Battle Creek, uh, I was so young and so stupid. And uh, now I'm just older and stupid. Uh, but uh, I started really opening my eyes in Omaha and, you know, you teaching me and teaching everybody. And one of the things I remember was when we got there, they had a client uh, which you took over, uh, Werner Enterprises. And I remember you going to the meeting and coming back and saying, you know, I went to this meeting and uh, they said, you know, show me what you got. Show me everything. And they turned in from a, they were a good size client of the teams, but then you made them into something uh, special. Tell us a little bit about that deal. How did you, how did you get that done? You know, that's, um, that is, um, it's, an, it's a very good educational experience or teaching moment for a number of people. You know, I wasn't supposed to start until October 1st, and I went into the GM at the time, and he said, hey, we've got this big client named Warner. Uh, they just came off their 50th celebration. I don't think they'll be coming back as a regular partner, but you need to go see them anyway, and you should go sooner rather than later. Well, that all was very promising, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so I was really pumped up. So I did. I called, and, and the gentleman I work with, uh, Fred Thayer, who is still a, a partner of ours, uh, said, yeah, I'll see you. I'll come on this day. And it was before the first. So whatever. I went in and, you know, the meeting went exactly as you just described it. Show me what you have. And in my mind, you know, my question back was, do you mean you want to see everything? Yes, everything. Well, that's probably not what you need to tell me. So I did. And at Rosenblatt, we were unable to sell uh, specific destination naming rights inside of Rosenblatt or overarching naming rights for the facility itself. So what we ultimately ended up doing after showing them the kitchen sink uh, was to create a presenting sponsorship for the season. And that was that first year was a a one year deal, which turned into a series of multi-year deals after 2007. And it was the prelude for what were what ultimately became Warner Park, where I'm still sitting today. And that was all from what do you want to see? Show me everything. And after doing a proper needs analysis, we matched it up best that we could. And you know, we, we had to be unique. We had to be unique, think out of the box. And it was our version of a naming rights deal at Rosenblatt Stadium, which ultimately turned into a true brick and mortar naming rights deal at Warner Park. So on off coming off the heels of this, uh, you know, first of its kind uh, season presenting partnership with Werner, uh, you're able to continue to grow that. And you're like you said, you're sitting in Werner Park. Talk about relationships you know marty if i'm going to give you a kudos is you're one of the best relationship builders that i have ever been able uh, to meet um talk about how that's important if someone is early in their career later in their career mid-career talk about the importance of building those relationships and how that has helped you um you know over your life well i mean i think there are relationships uh that 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 matter and then there are relationships that are uh, transformative uh to me transformative relationships are not just limited to 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 personal family relationships relationships transformative much like the one that you and i have that was developed 
uh, from a career-based perspective and a work office perspective that's turned into a personal one and to a degree family uh, as well. Um, but there are also those within the industry. And I think that minor league baseball is, is an industry that we truly are we're competitors, but not really. And if you really take this business serious, and, and you and I could both list 50 people that we could call right now in this industry that would, that would pretty much do anything for us, you know, within a time span. And I really think that developing relationships within the industry early on, having moved from the Southern League to another Southern League club to the Midwest League, almost going to the Pacific Coast League at one point in time, and then ultimately ended up ending up in the Pacific Coast League here in Omaha. Uh, I think those relationships within the business have helped me probably more than I give them credit for. And a lot of that I was able to, and I still continue to, to rely on some of those relationships as a source of strength on, on the tough days, as well as, a, as well as the successful days. Uh, but, you know, relationship isn't just about we're going to develop a relationship so we can go make a sale uh, or so I can pick the phone up and ask someone for a referral. Yes, those are relationships and they're needed and they're necessary. But those are transactional. They are transactional to a degree, to a degree. If you have a true relationship, which Werner, just to, to dig back into that, you know, into that relationship one more time, that is a true relationship. But yes, there are some, Rob, transactional is a word. And, you know, you and I, when we first came here, there were three things that we were charged by Alan Stein to do. And it was one was to change the transactional selling process to a relationship one to make us relevant in the community community through our community betterment programs, our reading programs, our, you know, our different community relations things. And then lastly was to try really hard to make it fun to go to a game and the entertainment experience to be enhanced in a 24,000 seat stadium where even on our best days, drawing seven, eight, 9,000 people, you're barely a third full. So, you know, those are the three things. And each of those, to a degree, is relationship-based, if you sit down and think about it. And, you know, sales, obviously, that was in, in the goal, the community. We had to develop relationships that we didn't have before we were able to foster them. And then the entertainment piece of that, we had to have people understand what minor league baseball had become over, at that time, 15 or 20 years, now 25 or 30 years later. And we really had to have relationships with fans before they would even listen to us. Uh, and so everything is based on relationship. Yeah. And t a little bit more than just, it's just not one way. It's totally two ways. You just can't always be asking for uh, something from the person on the other end. You've also got to be able to give too. Yeah. It needs to be reciprocal. It absolutely does. And, you know, you can't just pick the phone up when someone is launching a new product. You know, you need to cut out notes in the newspaper. I just did two today. Warner was just uh, recognized um, for a couple of awards. And I just sent him handwritten notes today. And, and you know, there's going to be a time when I need to call Warner and say, hey, will you buy 100 tickets to help me fill this night up? You can't just do that when you have a sales need. It has to be something that is genuine, authentic. Uh, and has a baseline of relationship, not just, oh, it's based on the piece of paper that the contract is written on. You talked a little bit about uh, Werner Park and the potential of, uh, you know, how that went down. And we went from Rosenblatt to, to Werner and you were on the front lines of negotiating that agreement. Can you pull back the curtain a little bit about and tell people what do you not know about that deal? What do you not know that happened. Take us in the boardroom per se on uh, on negotiating that agreement. What happened in there? Well, a little bit of background. Uh, you know, there was an announcement that came from the city of Omaha in May of 2007, and I was actually in an attic. And you sent me a text message actually, and said, "Hey, you have to go to Omaha.com. They're making an announcement uh, that they're going to build a new ballpark." That was the first time we had heard uh, about a new ballpark uh, after several years of efforts. The organization was in the stadium building uh, business, and they ultimately got out of the stadium building business. Uh, we needed to work and rehab our own minor league baseball image. So 
you know, when that happened, I was assistant GM when I was promoted um, in fall of 07. I was given the keys to say, here, figure out the stadium situation. Well, we pretty much already knew we weren't going to be playing at the new downtown ballpark, which ultimately is now TD Ameritrade Park in downtown Omaha. And that was a crazy thing when when you were going through that. Talk a little bit. About, so and to give a little history, at Rosenblatt Stadium, we played in a 25,000-seat uh, giant ballpark, which the AAA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals uh played in for 72 games, and then the College World Series played in uh, for three weeks in June. And they were talking about, again, sharing a facility in downtown Omaha that would be properly sized uh, for the College World Series, and then they would kind of sort of fix us, fit us in with, like, flying in bleachers and all kinds of stuff. Talk a little bit about the detail about why sharing a facility in Omaha didn't work well, yeah, the mayor talked about flying seats and carousels and covering up of seats. And, you know, a lot of the things we did at Rosenblatt was really just to right-size the facility to try to make it fun, to try to make the environment fun. And we quickly realized that that just wasn't uh, just wasn't in the cards for us. Uh, creating that environment was difficult enough as it was. And minor league baseball had changed, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, and, and was more intimate and was more family fun and was more carousel than it was baseball on the field. It was right. more thirsty Thursday than it was who's the next top prospect. And it, it just changed. Um, so, you know, we assumed we would be moving. We assumed we would be leaving town. And that ultimately did not happen uh, due to a relationship with one of our ticket holders uh, that uh, connected me with the county attorney in Sarpy County. And then separate from that, Alan Stein was traveling back to Kentucky, uh, back home. And the county administrator at the time, Mark Wayne, was also traveling to visit his daughter that lived in Kentucky. And the flight they were on was delayed. And they ultimately met, I think it was a Memphis airport that they ran into each other and met. And they spent the better part of a couple hours just talking about what, what is minor league baseball. And you know, that led to a couple more meetings that then led to April 23rd, I think, of 2008. We did a somewhat formal presentation to a couple of the Sarpy County board members. And while that was going on, on a parallel path, there were 11 or 12 other cities around the country, uh, Vancouver, Tucson, Lenexa, and primarily Sugarland, Texas was the one that uh, that you and I both thought that we were going to be moving to. I actually started looking at houses online, never made the trip, and I thought we were going to be moving to Sugarland. So um, the opportunity here just kind of organically happened, but it happened through relationship, and we got to know Sarpy County. They then hired a consultant in summer of 07, started negotiating the deal with them in October of 07, March of 08, officially signed the agreement, and then June 1st of 08, the site was selected, which is where we are today, 126th and Highway 370 in Sarpy County, and then on August the 9th, uh, no, August 12th, 2009, uh, we actually had the groundbreaking, and um, things moved very rapidly after that. So a lot of my listeners, I hope, would want to be in the room when you are starting to negotiate that deal with the county and the consultants. What's the what's the room like? Uh, what is being discussed? Uh, you know, if we were flies on the wall, what would we hear in those type of room? Well, going back, I'll start with the city of Omaha. We quickly realized, you know, my first call as a GM in the fall of 07 was, Hello, Mayor Fahey. I hear that we are playing in your downtown ballpark. Well, of course you are. College World Series in Creighton are playing there as well. Well, you know, May was the announcement, and no one has spoken to us. So that was basically the negotiation with the city of Omaha. Uh, we quickly realized that we were assumed, and we but were not we were not appreciated. We that was such the tenor of when we were there, too. It was just, no, nah, you know, the o Omaha Royals at the time were just such an afterthought. And uh, it was our goal to make them not. So I apologize to uh, interrupt you, but no, it's kind of giving me PTSD, Marty. 
Yeah, a little. It was. It was just. It was bizarre to a degree, and we quickly realized that the ballpark design, the ballpark building manager, the ballpark orientation, what have you, had already been decided. You know, and we, you know, we 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 knew that we had to begin to move on and look at what the next opportunity was going to be for us. Uh, it we just didn't know at that time it was going to be. It was going to be Sarpy County. That's crazy. It was. Uh, so in those meetings, are they uh, are you talking bullet point by bullet point? Are you going uh, you going through each item? Um, what's what's it is, it? is it very legal? Is it uh, people yelling at each other or people smoking cigars, drinking whiskey? What's what's going on in there? Yes. All of the above. <laughs> You know, and it's not all in there. You know, there would be dinners and there would be formal presentations and then there would be informal phone calls and then there would be formal meetings with uh, attorneys. And, um, you know, it was it was I wouldn't call it bizarre, but it was different. And um, and uh, it was it was a definite experience, one that I'm very grateful for. You know, one of the things that uh, I find to be best when I, you know, the best types of employees. And I think your experience uh, with Sarpy County and with negotiating that shows this is you've got to be really well-rounded, right? You've got to be able to go into a boardroom and be able to own the boardroom. And, but you also have to be able to go out and have a drink with somebody and uh, be able to be very social. I think the people who only can do one thing uh, don't get the full experience and aren't uh, well-rounded enough, uh, to, you know, to go to really accelerate their careers. They just get focused in on one thing. And I agree with that. And I would tell you that I largely through my career, especially probably the first six, seven years, I probably didn't do enough of the socializing piece of that. You know, I'm not a golfer. Uh, no, I've never, I've never been, uh, you know, a, a a, a big consumer of alcohol, but, you know, I learned through the process that that is part of it. And, you know, being, um, you know, being, um, in, in the role as, a, as whether it's a department head leader or in my case, organizational leader, there are certain things you have to do and you have to, you have to play the part. And, you know, I can tell you now, absolutely what you just said is a hundred percent true. You have to be a chameleon, and I think my personally personality uh, lends itself well to to be to being a chameleon and to be able to accomplish those things. Yeah, I I agree with that. So one of you know I I've described you as my mentor, right? As you have taught me the ropes of not only minor league baseball but life and uh, business and just you know how to go about my how to go about my day. I feel when someone brings up the term mentor, it's a heavy responsibility. Do you feel that way? Uh, yes, but not in a sense of, of dread, uh, not in a sense of um, concern. Uh, it's heavy in a sense of responsibility and, and accountability. And I look at those things as positive. So um, you know, to be called a mentor is humbling. Uh, to be one uh, is is rewarding, and and to see the successes that you and some of the others that I've been able to to take under my wing, uh, and if they call me a mentor or not, uh, that's their business. You know, I leave it up to you guys to define that. You know, I don't, I don't I'm not going to self-define, uh, but it is rewarding. And and people ask me quite often, you know, what what are the things that are most important or the best memories that you've had at Warner Park, and very easily. Uh, I can identify them. They're hard for me to explain to a degree. The first is walking in the ballpark and seeing a, a grandfather and a grandson or a um, husband and wife or two brothers or whatever, a, a family, a group come out and just simply have a good time. Enjoy the ballpark with whatever they have going on, whether they're there to actually watch baseball, whether they're there celebrating a loved one, whether, whether they are there with a company or a charitable endeavor. You know, whatever it may be, ballparks from a baseball perspective are supposed to be about fun 
nine inning vacations, three hours of fun, come out and have fun, don't work to have fun, all the quirky sayings, you know them all. And to me, that's number one. Number two, it's seeing our staff and people that have put blood, sweat, and tears into, whether it's in Jackson, Birmingham, Battle Creek, or in Omaha, um, seeing them realize their dreams and their goals and not specifically to the professional sports or the professional baseball business, but to the game of life. And to me, those are the two most rewarding things that I've experienced since I've been in baseball, but specifically in Omaha at Warner Park. You know, looking back at it, you know, I always say you're my father. We worked together for eight years, two in Battle Creek and six in in Omaha. Um, I would describe myself as a rebellious teenager for most of those. <laughs> would you agree or disagree with that at self-assessment? Yes. <laughs> um, Any examples that you'd like to share? Well, you know, I don't know. This, this example is just one that really speaks to, I don't think people truly understand um, how hard starting in this business can be but i had to go to you in march and sit you down and say rob i was hired in december you do know that you are in sales yeah why marty well that means you have to sell something (laughs) i didn't i didn't sell a damn thing for like three or four months yeah you're giving yourself uh too much of a bad name it was the first 45 <laughs> to 60 days you 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 did sell something in march you did uh which would probably be 60 to 75 days so okay all right you're not too far off but um you know i, I tell that story because you could have easily folded your tent up and you didn't you took coaching and you took direction you took a little bit of a of, of a butt whooping and and you worked you worked hard. You worked hard. And, you know, you've had a level of success that, that many would be envious of. And, you know, oh, you and I there. both uh, many times have said, why the hell did we do this? And then there are other times when we both say, remind, remind us, remind each other. We need to remind us when uh, times get hard. These are the reasons, you know, like no specific example, but um, and you know, this is a great game. It's a great game. It's a great industry. So you brought up a little bit about the ass chewing that you gave me in uh, in March of '05. Um, what do you think? Uh, you know the the best employees that you have. What do you think? Not best employees. That sounds too uh, grandiose. But like the what are you looking for in year one employees? Right, they're just coming on. They're just getting out of college. They are. Um, just trying to figure out their life. What do you think, what do you find, what kind of qualities do you find from the best people that are coming into, that, are, that you get out of year one? I just had lunch with a, a young man named Harry today, and uh, he's been with us since February. He was in hockey. Uh, he grew up a baseball fan, played baseball through high school. Uh, a nice young man. But the quality about Harry, and I told him this just today at lunch, the quality that I admire most about him, and yes, admire a 23-year-old uh, young person in our business, absolutely, half my age. Matter of fact, I have a son that's older than him. Huh. And I said, Harry, I who's also him. a musician. He, he is. Gavin, yeah, my oldest, is also a musician. But I told Harry today, I said, you know, I'm here to do something for you. What, what do you, what do you need? I don't know what I need right now, but I appreciate the fact, Marty, that you're telling me that. But why, you know, why, why are you, you know, asking me this? I said, because you're tenacious. You get on the phone, you make your calls, you're methodical about it. You don't care if there's 17 questions from a client. You don't complain. You put your nose down and you go to work. And that is what minor league baseball is about. Yeah, it's what sales is about. Yes, it's what about, it's what group sales is about, but it's more about our industry and our industry has changed. Um, you know, exempt, non-exempt employees, hourly versus salary, and so on and so forth. And it is harder now as a young person to make an impression than it was when you and I started. And so I think his tenacity is really what uh, intrigues me the most. And yeah, I'm proud. I'm proud to have him on staff. 
You know, one of the things that you told me in Battle Creek, I remember like it was yesterday, maybe it was during the conversation uh, where you said, hey, uh, Rob, go freaking sell something for the first time, is it was very liberating. You just said, go, just go and do it. Go and do whatever you think is best. And it was like this weight was lifted off of my shoulders of this thing of just, if you just go and then figure it out, it'll work out. But if you're timid and you're afraid to make the wrong move, uh, you're playing the wrong game. Uh, I think that no matter if you work in baseball or basketball or you work as an accountant somewhere, just go and do it and be aggressive in the way that you go about your business. I find those types of people are much more successful than the people who ask for, oh, can I go over there? Can I, can I do this? No, it's way, it's way easier to ask for forgiveness than it is permission. You know, it is. And I, and I think I'll answer this a little different or give a little bit more insight. Those that are screwing up, those that are making mistakes, those are the ones that are trying. They're not the ones that are not. Right. That's a great point. You know, the people that aren't making mistakes aren't here very long. And quite frankly, they probably don't stay in very many spots, very many career, very many jobs very long. Um, I want people that are making mistakes because if they're making mistakes, they're trying new things. They're out. They're working. They're being tenacious. They're 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 hustling. And that means for every mistake they have, they're probably having 10 successes. Right. So flip the same question I just asked you. So I asked you what makes the most successful year ones. We call them uh, one and dones. What makes a one and done? Right. So flip it. Hmm. Someone that has a sports management degree and they think they're going to come manage someone. Um, <laughs> someone who. Um, you know, someone who who grew up. Uh, maybe. Uh, a little bit more well-to-do than another. They feel like things are going to be easy. You, know, you, can't Entitlement. Out, you can't just roll out of bed. You know, there are very few George Bretts you roll out of bed and hit. Uh, that, 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 you know, there are very few people that can do that. Uh, you can't just roll out of bed and things happen for you. You have to work. You have to work hard. And, you know, um, Working hard is a lost art, and you know that's something my dad taught me at a very, very young age. You can pretty much always out-effort someone else, and I think that's some something else. You know, I think that also goes with being tenacious, hard work. You know, being tenacious, you ha- you have to be able to work hard to be tenacious. So you just added president of a U.S. a to be named USL soccer team, you know, minor league soccer, uh, to your uh, to your resume. Um, one, are you going to break the news of the team name here on Front Office Features with Rob Crane? Uh, not today. <laughs> Damn. Maybe in the future. Maybe, maybe in the future. You always give yourself an out. All right, but my real question is, you've been negotiating that with Gary Green, the owner of the Storm Chasers, for a handful of years. Um, pull back the curtain a little bit. Tell us a little bit how that process got started, how that uh, was pushed over the finish line and any bumps uh, in the road along the way. Well, Gary Green, our CEO and principal owner, also is a minority owner in the Richmond Flying Squirrels and the Montgomery Biscuits, as well as uh, the lead investor CEO of Baseball America. So he's someone that is um, definitely in the sports world. And after the Omaha purchase was done in June of 12, and started moving into 1314, you know, he was looking at what may be next in Omaha, in addition to, not separate from, but in addition to the Omaha Storm Chasers. And the NBA D-League started to take on a life of its own. You did some consulting work for Gary uh, at a certain point in time did. Uh, for that. So you're, you were intimately involved in that. That was well, a lot of fun, too. It was. And what ultimately ended up happening, uh, NBA wanted um, one-to-one just like AAA is to Major League Baseball uh, from an affiliations perspective, and they wanted to move quickly. Ultimately, a number of the NBA owners thought otherwise, and they said, no, we need to move a little more methodical, and we want to own the majority of each of the franchise franchises. So we were not really interested in being partners with the Nuggets or Bulls or Timberwolves if we were not 
the managing partner. We were not the ones calling the day-to-day shots in Omaha. They're not here. They don't live here. They don't understand the marketplace like we do. So when that ended, Gary started looking for what's next. And what's next uh, was USL. And um, USL, well, I should say it was soccer. And Gary looked at the NASL, and he looked at the USL. And at the time, the NASL had the bigger markets. The NASL had the longer history. NASL had probably better street cred. And Gary did not buy it. He felt that the NASL would not be around for long. He thought the USL had a great growth model and path. And he was exactly right. NASL has since folded. The USL is the fastest growing sports league in the world, not just in North America. They're adding anywhere from four to eight teams a year, uh, professional teams each year they have over the last three years. And they're going to do that again going into 2020. We will be one of those. Uh, So that's where the soccer interest came from. And soccer nationally uh, just continues to grow. The MLS continues to grow. The USL continues to grow. And it's not just, uh, you know, on, on, on the men's side. I would argue that the, the women's side is as popular or more popular uh, with Team USA uh, than even the men's side. So that, that, that is different, as you know, with most sports. It's either men or women. For example, women's volleyball, very popular. Men's is not. Um, um, if, you look at, if you look at basketball, you know, men's basketball is more popular than women's basketball. But with soccer... That's really not the case any longer. Women's soccer is very popular. And then I would tell you the other sport that continues to grow much faster than its counterpart is softball is growing at a much higher rate uh, than than baseball is at this point in time. So that's how we got into it. And um, uh, we have half of uh, the ownership is local investors. The other half is the baseball ownership group. It's um, it's interesting, and I uh, I know that ticket sales have just been off the charts for you guys thus far, uh, and now you're probably one of what four, five, six minor league baseball teams to also host a USL soccer franchise. I think we'll be the ninth or tenth, ninth, just, wow. just in the Pacific Coast League, and you got Louisville, you got Tulsa, there are a number of others outside. I think Rob, that number is closer to fifteen or sixteen. I don't know specifically, but uh, more than half of the PCL, which is pretty crazy. That's really cool. All right. So last uh, last question as we uh, wrap up uh, the Marty Cordero interview here on Front Office Features is one of the things I like to end with. um, I call them front office favorites. So these are people who impacted your career. They could be mentors of yours. They could be people that you've worked with. uh, They could be clients. They could be uh, anybody in your professional career uh, that has made a major impact. Um, Who would those uh, front office favorites be for you, Marty? Uh, Randy Davis, uh, baseball coach, Louisiana Tech. Uh, He taught me uh, uh, to not always... uh, he taught me to be open-minded, you know, just because there wasn't a volunteer assistant spot open. Uh, it, it wasn't for me to say no to him. I needed to say yes. And it changed my career. Uh, David Hirsch, first GM, by, uh, uh, Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, David, uh, uh, went through a tough time in Jackson. Uh, but he was about fans first and he was about promotions and marketing and having fun. And I learned that from him. Uh, fast forward, uh, jumping forward a little bit, Alan Stein, uh, giving me the opportunity to be first uh, time GM in Battle Creek, Michigan, and becoming uh, one of my mentors, absolutely. Uh, and then, and then moving me and you subsequently as well to, to Omaha and giving us a chance. Uh, and then probably overall, someone who's been along the way with me has been Pat O'Connor. Uh, Pat, uh, all through my stops, Pat's the CEO and president of minor league baseball. Uh, you know, he's been a big supporter for me uh, along the way. Uh, of course, my parents, um, you know, they taught me. Uh, my dad taught me the work ethic and my mom taught me the caring side of things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I've got a nice blend of the two of them. But of all. By the way, your dad sounds, you know, the guy from the water boy who sits up in the stands. That's what your dad sounds like. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> Maybe I just had to watch him then. I couldn't understand what he was saying growing up. So, 
his work ethic for him, you know, really was instilled in me. But I also think you got from your dad. Your dad is one of the more kind people, generous uh, person I've ever uh, I've ever met. Not to say your mom's not, uh, but uh, that type of personality I think really rubbed off on you. Yeah, yeah, it is. But you haven't sat across the table from him and, and negotiated with him either. So as uh, but I've as, negotiated with you, and that wasn't fun either. As a business person or a son, it's the same. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, my dad's been a big part of my career. But I would tell you, probably the person that um, that doesn't get the fanfare, and and I always say this to her, uh, is is my wife. You know, baseball wives, uh, professional sports wives don't get the credit, whether they work or don't work, whether they have kids or don't have kids, and all that's irrelevant. Being there as the spouse of someone running, and I would argue minor league franchise is harder than running a major league franchise because we do 20 things where at the big leagues, at the major leagues, they're more focused and more in in silos. So my wife, Sarah, I mean, she would have to be, you know, my champ. I, I don't know that she's my mentor. She is sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, she's my psychologist sometimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, w- without without our wives, Rob, and you know what I'm talking about. I hear you. We, we wouldn't be doing this interview right now. No, I hear you. And you met your wife. Uh, she was a sweet server in Jackson, right? She was. All right, so all the young people who are just starting in their careers, keep your eyes out for sweet servers. Is that some good advice? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> More importantly, just don't screw up a sweet client's order like I did and have to go apologize to Jerry Swatowski of Texaco. That's that's ultimately where I... Uh, so you, I- so how, how this worked is you screwed up a sweet order and had to go apologize, and the person uh, running uh, was the sweet server that night was your soon-to-be wife, uh, Sarah. And that was it. That's exactly what happened. Uh, well, you know, screwing stuff up. If you don't make mistakes, you're not trying, right? We talked about that earlier. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right, Marty, you're the best. Thank you very much for being on Front Office Features. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Good luck with front office features. I'm honored to be the first guest, and uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing uh, numerous other guests and following along, and I hope all the listeners will follow follow you on all your social media channels as well. Good luck, Rob. Uh, You're the best, Marty. Thanks. You heard, Marty. Make sure you're following us on our social channels at FO Features on Twitter and search Front Office Features on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And while you're at it, give us those five-star reviews, Spotify and Apple. We really appreciate it. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.